Now, there's a reason why I'm here today. There's a purpose in my life, and I can trace it all the way back to my time in the Marine Corps. I think that, I mean, everybody is broken in some way, shape, or form. Everybody is. Yeah. You're not full of happiness all the time. But it's how you develop relationships and um, how you water those relationships like they're flowers. You've yeah. got to take care of those relationships and have people around you that you can go to when you are in need. If I was to commit suicide, this is a true uh, event in my life, is what's going to happen to my son? Yeah. How is my son going to view me? Um, who's going to be there for him when he needs a father figure the most? Really helps me not think about myself, not think about the problems that I've experienced or the hardships that I'm going through right now. If people want to know things about veterans and want to know what war is like, just ask. I mean, and I think as veterans, we, we owe that to them, the people that we actually serve, an explanation for what things were like. The views and opinions in this podcast do not represent the Department of Defense, Department of the Navy, or United States Marine Corps. After their deployment in 2008, some called them the Forgotten Battalion. But the Marines and sailors of the United States Marine Corps' 2nd Battalion and 7th Marine Regiment reject the way the Forgotten Battalion moniker encourages that narrative of broken veterans. Instead, these warriors simply want to be remembered for the mission they accomplished and for the honor with which they have served their country and their corps. The majority of 2-7 veterans continue to reflect on their experiences while living their lives and pressing forward. These are their personal stories of resilience with insight to healthy coping and living with hope. Welcome to the Warriors Roundtable. Today we talk to former 2-7 Marine and saw gunner Travis Kaiser. Travis, the last time we saw each other was about two weeks ago in 29 Palms, and you were lighting it up with the new infantry <laughs> assault rifle, the M27. How was that for you? That was awesome. I, I really enjoyed the ability to shoot a fully automatic weapon again. Um, you know, and I took full advantage of every round that I could. Yeah. Because uh, back here in Texas, that's going to be like, for 10 rounds, you're going to spend like 10 bucks. So <laughs> I made sure to get my money's worth out of shooting the M27. And, and it was fun. It was, it was great seeing the advances that the Marine Corps is, is making. What, uh, what was the weapon itself like to shoot? Because what, were you a saw gunner or were you? Did... Yeah, I was a saw gunner. Okay. Um, so the weapon was, it was obviously lighter than the saw. Mm-hmm. Um, I like that about it, but I didn't like the fact that it doesn't hold as many rounds and constantly you're going to have to be reloading a lot. So yeah, in that aspect, I didn't like it, but it's a very accurate weapon. Very accurate. So I guess the whole kind of theory is trading the volume of firepower for more accurate, though, though fewer rounds. Yeah. I, I hear what they're saying, but it's, you know, I still like the whole idea of suppressive fire and yeah. volume of fire is going to keep the enemy's head down other than accuracy. In my yeah. 
Well, you've had some experience, obviously a lot of experience with the saw, um, especially in your, I know in, you, you did a tour in 2008 to Afghanistan with 2-7. Uh, tell us a little bit about your experience with the Marine Corps. You're out of the Marine Corps now, but tell us a little bit about what you did while you were in the Marine Corps, and then we'll dive maybe more into what you did with 2-7 in 2008. Yeah, I was um, sent to boot camp in 2005 at MCRD San Diego. I graduated a week before the Marine Corps birthday um, and then went to Camp Pendleton for infantry school. And then from there, I, I didn't leave infantry school until April, and I was sent out to beautiful 29 Palms. And, <laughs> you know, many, many fun training experiences mm -hmm. uh, with 27 Fox, and then was sent to Iraq in 2007 and to uh, We were there for seven months, and then we came back home for about six months before we deployed to Afghanistan. Okay. And still to this day, I don't recall having a lot of free time. And that was something that was crazy going back to 29 and seeing all the Marines are all muscled up and like their ability to go to the gym, you know, and I was like, we didn't, I didn't feel like we ever had free time. If you were, you were going out to a range Monday afternoon, you weren't coming back till Thursday. Now there probably were a couple of weeks where we didn't have training like yeah. that, but I don't feel like the training was toned down. We, we got a lot of good training in. Yeah. I feel like um, if anything, they just tried to get us to go up into the mountains more, but where we were at in Afghanistan there, we didn't really need, need that but okay so how much time roughly do you think in those six plus months you had home how much time would you say you were actually out in the field uh, versus home at least you know in a, in a month maybe three weeks we were out in the field um i mean i don't recall exact details but i just I just felt like we were always out in the field yeah. and you know, that's how it was before we went to Iraq too. I mean, we had great leadership that looked into getting us as minutes range time as we can. And that's the blessing of being out at two nine is yeah. that you can go to the range and shoot live ammunition every day of the week. If your company wants you to. Right. So that, that was awesome. Speaking of 29, one last question about our trip there a couple of weeks ago. So, you know, one of the great things about 29 Palms is for those who have never been there, you can, you literally go over that ridge on the back side of, we'll call it main side of where the base is. And from that ridge, you can see some of the, the combat towns and ranges, and you can get to the ranges really, really quickly and feel like all of a sudden, boom, you're, you're, you know, over in Afghanistan or something similar. So they celebrated 2-7 by doing that ripper run early in the morning that first day. What was that like for you to go back up the ridge in the sand and in the early morning hours and, and do that run with 2-7? You know, it was, it was great. Um, you know, I've kind of gotten soft since I've been out of the Marine Corps. Right. And, you know, for one thing, I, I coach swimming, so I hate when my feet get wet. And I hate, like... <laughs> being uncomfortable 
But as soon as we kicked off that run, yeah. I had sand in my shoes, mm-hmm. you know, sand in my, on my legs. And I didn't care anymore. I was just like surrounded by friends yeah. um, back in the old stomping grounds. And, you know, it was, it was great. I'm not in running shape, but <laughs> I wasn't the, I didn't, <laughs> I wasn't the first one up at the top of the hill and I wasn't the last one. So I'll take yeah. that as a win. Right. There were right. seven guys that the current two seven guys that I beat up sugar cookie. And that's probably because I had a little more experience running up sugar cookie in my grunt days than they did. Yeah. With a saw, right? You probably <laughs> did some know. of those with a loaded down. I don't know with uh if I had the same kind of affection running up sugar cookie with you a couple of weeks ago, but I love how they put those those uh those signposts in the desert yeah. that have the description of all the battles that seventh marines has been through and they renamed sugar cookie uh fox hill after fox 27 from uh, korea so that was really special i really enjoyed that's that really cool i mean that's that's something that anytime i go anywhere where they have like a, a monument to the marine corps or the navy mm-hmm. let's say like um i was in annapolis two summers ago and at their football stadium for the Naval Academy, they have all the battles that the Navy Marine Corps has been in. And it's so cool to sit there and say, you know, even though it just says the words Iraq or Afghanistan, to say that that's something I was a part of. And yeah. I really like that. And I don't know if the Marines that are currently in the Marine Corps right now would really appreciate that, mm. like the, the signs, as much as people like us did. Because yeah. as a regimental commander told us, you know, he takes his kids up there and shows them, Hey, this is what we've done. Yeah. And that's really awesome. Especially coming from an enlisted guy who never wanted to be around the battalion commander or <laughs> the regimental commander at all ever, let yeah. alone be on the run with them. Yeah. I mean, it was pretty cool. Oh, that's good. That's good to hear. Travis, let's talk a little bit about 2008. Where were you specifically in Afghanistan, Uh, not just with what company uh, or what uh, platoon, but where geographically were you and what were you guys doing? So we were in Musakela, Afghanistan, which geographically it's right along what people call the green zone. There's like a major wadi riverbed that goes from north to south pretty much in the middle of Helmand province. Mm-hmm. And so we were right along that wadi, uh, Sangin and uh, Marja. Those, those places are far down to the south. Nalzad was uh, to the west, uh, to the west of us, correct, across the desert. Um, and then Kajaki was, you know, over the mountain that we had in Musakela, a little bit more to the north. Okay. Okay. And what did you do there? Talk, talk a little bit about what your unit did in Musakela, but also specifically what your role was. In Musakela, we had 70 guys. We were a, uh, we were, I was with second platoon and we were, we had some attachments. So second platoon plus attachments. And I was an attachment pretty much as an extra body. Um, I would be going out on patrol with some of the squads I would go do resupply missions. I would be in charge of taking um, accountability for supplies that we got in. Um, I responded to mass casualties and helped train some of the Afghans, Afghan police that we had. Okay. Um, stood post. I mean, 
just did whatever whatever was told of me to do. But our, our job there, Musa Kayla, was to continue the security of that town. And Musa Kayla had, had like a historical importance for the British that were there while um, we were there. Because back in 2006, they had lost Musa Kayla. They had been pushed out of it, And they came back, took it over into December of 2007, I want to say, with the army, the 82nd Airborne. They came in and did a massive sweep, and we set up shop in the district center. But, you know, we were – 27 has the – the, should be proud that we were the first Marines to actually hold ground in Helmand province. And, mm. and I think that's something that Marine Corps really doesn't give us enough credit for, but, you know, uh, I'm not paying too much attention to what the rest of the Marine Corps did. I was just, you know, really fascinated with the history of Musa Kayla now sad in that area because yeah. it shaped into what our deployment was like. Since you worked so closely with the British in Musa Kela, did you notice a distinct difference between the way that they did business, so to speak, you know, their TTPs, their uh, techniques, tactics, procedures, and the way the Marine Corps did things? And if so, what, what was that difference like? One of the main things that comes to my head is the, the rules of engagement, the okay. ROEs. Um, as I recall, the British had to actively be receiving fire in order to shoot back. Mm -hmm. I I could be wrong. That's just the Lance Corporal underground talking back then. (laughs) But I do recall there were times like they would spot people digging and they couldn't do anything because they didn't see, they weren't receiving any hostile action. Whereas if we saw the same thing, people digging in the middle of the wadi at night with a large bag next to them, you know, that's a, that's an IED. It was just very weird being around the British who had been there for so long and, you know, feeling like we had less restrictions than they did on what they could do, where they could go. Um, I, I mean, I'm, I don't recall the British going out as much as we did, but then again, that could have just been me being ignorant to what was going on in the big picture of things. Sure, sure. Um, but they were, it was great working with the British. I'm glad they were there. They were great men and women. And it was a, it was a pleasure serving with people that are from a different nation. You yeah. get a whole, different perspective on life and that you are part of something that's way bigger than just the United States when the British and the Estonians were involved. I know that, and now said they had a lot more Estonian help than we did. I think we only had one guy that was Estonian with us. And a similar, it sounds like a similar kind of difference that you just highlighted in Musa Kela where the, the other forces, the other nations had a, uh, rules of engagement that did not allow them to do what the Marine Corps, that quite frankly, your mission is as a grunt, you know, the uh, Marine Corps infantry locate, close with, and destroy the enemy. Uh, yeah. Whereas they were a bit more, I think, reactive. So they could allow the Marines to take lead, to take point in an operation or an engagement and 
obviously as soon as you take fire, now it's game on. So I think they enjoyed having the Marines there, uh, kind of maybe freed them to, to be war fighters and do what they were there to do. Yeah. They definitely liked our food more. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I will always remember them walking over from their bivouac area to ours whenever we would get a resupply and try to, you know, bum some Dr. Peppers off of us or nice. um, MREs. I mean, and we tried theirs and we had their chow too. And they, they love curry. I just remember eating a lot of curry and having uh, stomach issues after that. Um, yeah, it was a, it was a great experience. Something that didn't happen in Iraq. Huh. So maybe just the, novelty of having something different so being able to kind of share each other's meals just broke up the monotony of the day-to-day -day. absolutely travis tell us a little bit if you would about either uh, an event that kind of sticks out in your mind or something that keeps coming back to you something that has particular meaning to you as you think back upon your deployment to afghanistan in 2008 I I like to think of my first combat engagement as something that really like defined my entire Marine Corps um, service. And mm. I joined the Marines for adventure as most middle-class white children do is they, they want <laughs> adventure. They want something more than what they have at home. Yeah. And I mean, I, when I, I, would, I was a teacher for five years, and I tell all the kids that are thinking about the military, get a job. Get a real job that you can take out into the civilian world with. You don't just be infantry to have fun. You'll have fun, but come out of it with a job. But yeah. anyways, uh, we had to go down south in the Wadi, and then an F-18 had dropped a bomb, and that bomb didn't go off, and they had eyes on locals going towards the bomb and you know we at first we thought okay they're going to turn that into an ied and we can't have it or use it in some way against us so you know with british we got in a long convoy and we headed south it was cool because we knew we were going to get contact mm -hmm. we knew that that was a huge possibility and we had heard about it in iraq where you know you know you're going to get contact when everybody's leaving or it's quiet out. And we saw that in Afghanistan. You saw people leaving in caravans and you could hear mm. stuff over the radio about, you know, they have eyes on us and um, wait for the attack or whatnot. And, you know, that was a truly awesome experience. I mean, for some people, it was a life-changing experience. I mean, my really good friend, Sean Casper was wounded by an RPG. Uh, so was Posner and this, um, one of the combat camera guys was actually injured too. Um, I remember people, you know, talking about dropping mortars onto the Taliban and then, you know, Apaches coming in and it was, it was like cacks all over again. It was a huge combined arm exercise where we had mortars dropping. We had Apaches, we had, one bomber come over oh wow it was really awesome and i just will never forget how excited i was to finally be able to engage with the enemy with suppressive fire not uh accurate yeah suppressive fire <laughs> um 
and then it also kind of, even now I always think about like God has a plan for me and mm. you know, things happen for a reason, you know, cause when we were at that engagement, I was told by the staff sergeants that I was to get out of the vehicle to provide cover and uh, security for any dismount. So anybody that got out of their vehicles and, you know, Casper Posner and the combat cameraman climbed down the ladder of the seven ton, got out. And then I, I was supposed to do that. I was supposed to be their security element on the ground, but I stayed in the vehicle and they got hit by the RPG and the RPG threw me into the vehicle as well. And, you know, I always think back about what well, my life could be a lot different if I had just walked down some stairs. I mean, to think about that really long and hard is that things happen for a reason. There's a reason why I didn't walk down those stairs. There's a reason why that I didn't, go with first platoon, which is who I was with on my first deployment. And, you know, I, when I start thinking about things that are negative about my life, I always kind of look back on that and say, mm -hmm. you know, there's a reason why I'm here today. There's a purpose in my life and I can trace it all the way back to my time in the Marine Corps. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. That's a, a very, optimistic, healthy way of looking at processing through part of your combat experience in a way that just continues to make you stronger and, and healthier today. Uh, tell us a little bit more maybe about that particular engagement. Obviously, that's your first combat engagement. It sticks out to you. Uh, you kind of described it broadly, sort of like it was like a CACS experience with uh, um, you know, air power coming in, indirect fire, and as well as everything you guys are doing on the ground. So it sounds like when Casper and Posner got hit, that was sort of uh, at the sort of at the beginning of the whole engagement. And take us maybe through that, if you don't mind, a little bit more as far as uh, how that flushed out afterwards. So we, as I said, we were driving down the Wadi, and the Wadi is a dry riverbed. So there is still water in it and mud puddles, and there's a little more like a creek than it is a river at that time of the year. And um, our seven-ton got stuck, mm -hmm. and there was nothing that we had that could pull that seven-ton out. And so we had Casper, Posner, and some other people get out because they were going to try to hook up a tow strap to it. Mm -hmm. And as we came to experiences, that was in Musakela, that was when the Taliban loved to attack. I mean, it was a prime advantage for them where troops are stuck in the wadi. They're all gathered around a vehicle. So then, you know, they, if I recall correctly, they were dropping mortars first. Mm -hmm. um, and one of those mortars kind of hit closer to Staff Sergeant Hernandez's vehicle. And we were kind of just looking around, waiting for stuff. And then that's when an RPG and small arms fire started coming in. And I recall it was an RPG and the they were trying to hit the seven ton because the seven ton where I was at had, you know, several other Marines in the back, like eight, at least eight others in the back of that vehicle. And if you could manage to hit the top of the troop carrier, they would have like really hurt a lot of us in the back of that seven ton. Yeah. And, um, you know, they were, there were Taliban running around. I remember, call, I recall seeing um, a guy in a white 
man dress running between buildings and shooting at him. Mm. You know, he would pop out around the corner and shoot at AK at us. And I recall just trying to suppress him and shoot where he might be or end up next. So that would be yeah. shooting windows at doors. And, you know, people might say, well, you don't know what you're shooting at. You might've hurt innocent civilians. And like, I don't, I didn't worry about that because in Afghanistan at that time, the, the civilians were leaving. They were, right. they were all leaving the scene. They had taken their valuables with them in a long caravan. And they knew we were coming. Yeah. The Taliban knew we were coming. And so, yeah, once we got into contact, I don't recall how long it was, but it, it felt like a long time. And there was uh, Apaches that came in. Our our, uh, our mortar team dropped a mortar on a Taliban guy that was hiding behind a wall, apparently. Um, and we ended up getting the, the seven ton pulled out of the mud one of the British, one of the British vehicles came by and pulled us out. And then, you know, the, the seven tons tires had been destroyed. So it was immobile. It was completely immovable. And so we had to be drugged back home. And I, I remember coming back into the fob. And as we were doing that, um, uh, I want to say it was a, a French Mirage or a, uh, you know, it would have been a, Marine Corps Harrier did a show of force, which is so awesome to to see a jet like that fly over you really low off the deck and yeah. drop flares. And I just remember everybody cheering. You know, it was it was awesome. It was what we had signed up for. Yeah, for the right, right. Yeah, there's a certain satisfaction in doing your job well, and and yes, there's loss of human life, but there's uh, on both sides, obviously. Now, Casper and Posner, if I recall correctly, they actually ended up coming out of that particular uh, uh, firefight okay, uh, with all their limbs and alive. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Um, even the cameraman stats, he was stats. brought back up into the seven ton. Mm. And the corpsman that was up there, he was treating him, and, and he had shrapnel to the face. It wasn't bad. It wasn't stuff like I'd seen in Iraq where it was massive damage to a body part or yeah. extreme yeah. bleeding from from the head or anything like that. It was they got they got really lucky. They got really lucky. And I'm so thankful that that happened for yeah. uh, that they were not destroyed. Yeah. And you were not able to jump. Mistake. Say again, I'm sorry. That's not a great way to say it. They weren't destroyed, but uh they weren't too terribly hurt from it. Yeah. They both, Casper and Posner both went home. Right. Cats, I think, did too. Stats did. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the fact that you were able to, despite getting blown back, uh, you, you didn't, in, you weren't knocked out. You're able to jump up and continue to suppress the enemy who otherwise could have continued to, to take the fight to your Marines in a way that uh, was devastating in its own right. So, you know, there's so many things about that one uh, incident that that definitely give you a sense of God's hand of providence on you all. Um, so that's good to that's great to hear. We certainly mourn the guys we lose, but we celebrate opportunities like that where we can not only take the fight to the enemy but come back, you know, with everybody in one piece physically, more or less. 
you know, a lot of times when we have, when we're sitting alone in the quietness of our thoughts, that's, that's when some of the, the more challenging memories come back or the, the harder memories come back. Is there anything in particular that, that keeps coming back to you when you have those moments, when you're sitting with your own thoughts? Uh, just feeling helpless. Um, when I, when I say helpless, you know, I wasn't in any real danger or the people that I was with weren't directly in any danger, but you know, we were two seven was so spread out and you would hear reports of, okay, we're on river city. Can't call home. Can't use the internet. Um, somebody has passed away and you're sitting there scrambling, trying to think about who it is and uh, yeah. what, what happened. You know, there was other times where I was on radio watch when Captain Trahoon and uh, Whitaker were were killed and mm -hmm. listening to them saying things like he's back alive or nope, he's dead now. He's back alive and just feeling like you can't do anything and that you wish you could be there to help your brothers out, even though you may not know them so well. But then the ones that you do know, it really hits your heart when you just hear their name. Yeah. You know, you know that they're dead. You can't do anything about it, and you have to go on about your day. Like, yeah. Sure, you can mourn them, but at the end of that mourning time, you still have to go back to work. And I, that's still kind of that still kind of affects me today. Where you know, my grandparents, when my grandfather passed away a couple of years ago, you know, I didn't want to go to the funeral. I didn't want to like dwell on his passing. Mm. I wanted to remember his life, but I also wasn't there for my mother. So I kind of felt bad. I really still kind of feel bad that I wasn't there. Um, but I, I just view death in a different manner now. Mm. And, and Afghanistan really did that to us. Yeah. Especially to me, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. It's imp so important to grieve it's part of what allows you to kind of release that and yet you were in a a place and in a situation where you could not do that i mean you had to keep that stuff kind of tucked away in its own box until you had time to actually process it because you had to i'm sure turn around and head back out on another convoy or patrol the the next day right yep that's absolutely correct yeah what do, have you done, Travis? I mean, you're, so there's a great quote in a book. Uh, I don't know if you've ever read it uh, called The Truth About PTS with a small d um, by Chad Robichaud and uh, Jeremy Stallnecker. They're the guys that run uh, Mighty Oaks. But uh, there's a great quote in here. Uh, he says that uh, trauma isn't a combat thing. It's it's a life thing, you know, that people often look at veterans as broken and really they are normal people who are, who are shouldering an abnormally heavy burden and honestly probably doing really well with it. Um, but what do you think about those who often kind of refer to or think about 2-7 as the forgotten battalion and they kind of, you know, in some of those contexts, they'll uh, thinking folks outside of two seven in particular, 
know, they often kind of talk about how broken veterans are. What would be your response to that? Well, I, I think everybody, as you said, it's a PTSD is a life thing. I think everybody, excuse me, has PTSD. Um, ours is just more pronounced and it's probably, uh, being in a stressful situation was, uh, happening more to us than it does the average person walking on the street. Let's say that you and I were never in the military. Okay. I get in a car wreck. Mm -hmm. I remember, okay. I was texting and driving or whatnot. I will always remember that car wreck. That's a traumatic experience. Yeah. Um, but if I hamper myself and I stop driving cars because of that incident, then I'm losing value with my life. True. Um, I think everybody has PTSD. We are just allowed um, to express it more than others. And, mm. uh, I think that, I mean, everybody is broken in some way, shape, or form. Yeah. Everybody is. Yeah. You're not full of happiness all the time. Um, but it's how you develop relationships and, um, how you water those relationships, like they're flowers. Yeah. You've got to take care of those relationships and have people around you that you can go to when you are in need. Yeah. You know, the, the thing about us being a forgotten battalion, I mean, even though a couple weeks ago we were being told and everybody was saying that we aren't forgotten. It's great. I mean, it's great to hear, but in my head and the other veterans' heads that were in 2-7, I mean, part of me is saying, what more should I expect? What what do I need 2-7, the Marine Corps, or the U.S. to do so that they remember 2-7? I mean, that's kind of ridiculous when you think about it. I don't need a parade on the 4th of July just for 2-7. I mean – what what more can I ask for from other people other than just sharing a story and things yeah. like this and um, being interviewed for books and guys writing about their books. I mean, their experiences, sorry. I think that's a way to never be forgotten. Yeah. Putting down your thoughts onto paper, putting it out there for others to see yeah. is a way that you'll never be forgotten. I mean, you, if you really want to, get down to brass tacks on this. Look at the world war one veterans. There's no more of them. Yeah. Are, are they forgotten? No. I mean, we have accounts of what they've done. We have people that we still revere that fought in world war one and the same thing with world war two. Mm -hmm. If you don't take time to remember those things, yeah, they will be forgotten. Mm. You know, and I like to think that two seven will have its, place in history one day. I mean, like I said, I don't know what that should look like. I don't think it should be a movie. I don't think it should be um, anything sort of crazy like that. Cause that's kind of like something I really enjoy about being part of two seven is that mystique of we were the first ones in Hellman province to actually stake our claim. Yeah. And everything else that came after that for Hellman um, is because of us, you know, the reason why Marja is so well known is because 
two seven went in there and kicked the hornet's nest. Yeah. And we shoved all those terrorists and Taliban down into Marshall. Mm. Um, why did Nowzad get cleared so quickly? Well, that's because after two seven was there, um, the Marine Corps realized that you can't just put two platoons there. Right. You've got to do more. You and look at Sangin. I mean, Sangin had the same thing where they were less than a company was at that place and they stuck a whole battalion, a whole battalion in yeah. Sangin, Afghanistan. It's interesting. You should mention that. I just talked to a Marine. Uh, let's see. He, I'm trying to remember, uh, was it three, five that came in after two, seven? We had three, eight, three, eight. Oh, that's right. And then I think he was with, uh, one of the battalions from fifth Marines that I, I want to say, uh, he was with one five, but I could be misremembering, but he came in and he said the same thing. You know, he's like, yeah, we were there with pretty much a battalion and he had, all, he couldn't believe that, that two seven had been in Sangin and every, you know, now Zad, Musakela, uh, Gulistan, all these places, you know, as, as a single battalion spread out, as really as platoons, you could say as companies, but like you were saying, even the companies weren't at, uh, were never or rarely at full strength. Um, yeah. So that's well, it's kind of like what Bing West went through when he was in Vietnam. You know, mm -hmm. There's a there's a book that they made us read called The Village, which talks about you know platoons being out in the middle of enemy territory or Indian country and yeah. having to deal with the locals. You know, and it's it is kind of a ego thing for a lot of Marines, I would think, but you know, it, it's cool to sit there and say, well, look what you guys did with all of the stuff that you had, these new vehicles, plate carriers, you know, mm -hmm. air support, you know, things like that. Yeah. If the British helicopters weren't able to fly that day, we couldn't go out on patrol in Musa Yeah. So, yeah. And it's, it's kind of a egotistical thing to, to say, but it's also a source of pride. And I think other Marines at 2-7 should look at it as a proud thing is that we did so much with so little, which yeah. is kind of the Marine Corps story in general. Mm -hmm. Well, every new grunt that uses the brand new infantry assault rifle will certainly be mindful of 2-7 every time they pick that weapon up. Hopefully they make that part of their, uh, uh, the stories that they tell and what do we call it when, uh, like in McMap, when you have the little, uh, the breakouts, the little lectures in between. Oh yeah. The little hip pocket classes. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm hopeful that they will, will talk about two seven and, and specifically, even though the, the infantry assault rifle, the M two seven was field tested in uh, Iraq. Uh, it was still two seven. Hopefully they'll tell the stories of what, uh, what was done in Afghanistan as well. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this, you know, I appreciate you being willing to talk from your heart about your experience. Cause I think this is part of that venue to, to help folks know what, what you all went through. And, uh, yeah. I think there's a lot of people who can relate and make sort of draw points of contact with their own experience. And like you said, trauma is people who have never been to combat still can't experience trauma, whether that's getting T-boned by a car or whether that's, uh, you know, a, a young uh, person experiencing abuse or sexual trauma or whatever. And there's a lot of points of contact with uh, what, what we're talking about to, I think, even those things. Um, speaking of which, 
how how have you continued your narrative so that that trauma doesn't define you? It's part of who you are, but it doesn't define you. That you've you've gone on to grow. Uh, how have you utilized other resources or people to help you continue to to move forward uh, from your experience as a marine? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, resource wise, um, I use people as my resource. Um, what I mean by that is we. We joined the Marine Corps to be a part of something that's bigger than us. And when we leave, we kind of feel like we're not a part of something big. Mm. I think you have to go make that feeling happen again when you get out of the Marines. Mm. Um, You've got to find a way to serve other people, help other people out. I mean, that's, that's what life is all about is helping others and they'll help you. Um, That's why I really fell in love with uh, coaching and teaching and uh, is being able to help others accomplish their goals and their dreams. Yeah. Um, and that's one of the things that the Marine Corps taught me was selfless service, putting others before you. And I think when you leave, you don't feel like you have that purpose. So when Marines get out, you know, they need to look at their children They need to look at their classmates or their spouse as somebody that they can help Um, because that's huge. That's, that's actually a huge thing that has gotten me through some difficult times is just remembering that, okay, if, if I was to commit suicide, this is a true uh, event in my life is what's going to happen to my son. Yeah. How is my son going to view me? Um, Who's going to be there for him when he needs father figure the most and you know that that kind of helped me a lot and you know i just try to find a way that i can bring value to any situation that i'm in and really helps me not think about myself Mm -hmm. i think about the problems that i've experienced or the hardships that i'm going through right now um it's it's been great it's um, definitely made me feel like I have more of a purpose now in life. Yeah. It sounds like what you're saying is it's not that you avoid thinking or even talking about uh, what you've been through. It's more so that you choose to frame it in a positive way. I mean, even talking about what happened that day that, uh, that you got blown back in the, in the seven ton, you know, realizing that, that it could have gone far, far worse, and you choose to look back on that with gratitude. The fact that you continue with uh, doing acts of, of compassion and service and give, pouring into others, like with your swim coaching at uh, Texas A&M, you know, those things help, I believe, kind of restore our humanity when sometimes you come back from combat feeling like maybe you lost a piece of that, and that kind of helps bring you back. Um you know, feeling, processing through thoughts of suicide and, and thinking not so much, uh, woe is me, but thinking of, well, how is this going to affect my son, my family, others that, that care for me? And that kind of getting you through that, that valley till you can come out on the other side and look back and, and go, okay, you know, that was, uh, that was clearly a, a dark kind of moment or season, but, um, Obviously, you know you made the right choice, 
and you can begin to uh, experience joy. And you talked a bit about your family. Uh, and I know you've told me before of how they play a role. And you talked about a little bit a minute ago about how they play a role in your own sort of growth and, and health. Uh, can you talk a little bit about your, your wife, uh, your daughter? Oh, they are, um, absolutely a central part of my life. Um, you know, I, I can't thank my wife and my daughter enough for allowing me to do the things that I do, um, for being there for supporting me. Um, and they're also the reason why I work as hard as I do mm. because I want to provide for them. And so they've, they've given me a lot of purpose. I mean, uh, if you don't have a daughter, you don't understand. And I know you do, but it's, it's just nothing like coming home and having your little girl so excited to see you. Yeah. She can't help but like dance or yeah. <laughs> beating, moving crazy ways that a two-year-old does. Yeah, right, right. Which is, which is something that I will always cherish. And I think others should find something like that in their lives to, yeah. Yeah. to be excited to come home to. Um, yeah, my, my family has been supportive of everything I've done. Um, and they're there for me, um, when I've needed help, they helped me to go seek help. Um, if they can't, um, yeah, they're, they're great. Yeah. Oh, that's good. You, uh, mentioned too earlier that part of your processing, what happened in that first combat engagement was just realizing, you know, God has a plan. How does faith play a role in your life now? Um, faith is something that I'm trying to get back into. Okay. And I, that's, that's a lot on me about how I've neglected church and neglected reading from the Bible, but I know that it's a huge part of my life mm -hmm. and um, it needs to continue to be not, not only a part of my life, but for my wife and my daughter. Yeah. Um, so actually I've accepted a job at a, um, at a college in North Carolina, Gardner Webb, which is a Baptist university, Southern okay. Baptist university. And one of the main things has attracted me to that place is that there's strong religious connections. You know, their, their coach, when he took me around for a tour, excuse me, and we went to lunch, you know, prayed over our food. And that's something that. I hadn't done in a long time and it felt great to finally be doing that again. Mm. You know, it's, you know, it, it kind of always draws back to having a, a sense of purpose in your life. Yeah. And, and religion does help that help with that a lot, helping others to live a better life, seeking self-improvement as well. Mm. Um, these are all values that I'm know that I know that I'll find with religion, finding a greater sense of purpose and ability to um, improve myself and others around me. Yeah. Yeah. I think we all want to live our life with meaning, which is something we had, uh, well, I'm still on active duty, but we want to live our life with meaning. And that's something that we had or have when we're on active duty or when we're, especially when we're deployed, when we're 
operating with our brothers or sisters to where obviously we only had uh, brothers as uh, Marine infantry, but to your left and you got these folks to your left and your right, and you don't even really realize how, how awesome that is and how tight you become until you get out and you don't necessarily have that same sense of uh, team and, and meaning and, and closeness. But uh, what I would agree, I think where I have found an even higher meaning is through my relationship with God and in the the fellowship with others who share the same faith uh, in Christ. But you're you just talked. First of all, congratulations! It sounds like you got a, a new job you're going to be sliding into next year. Yeah. And or this at the end of this year is are you, does that mean you guys are moving from Texas to North Carolina? Yeah, that's a it's going to be an interesting trip. Okay. <laughs> Fifteen hours for my baby girl is going to be interesting yeah i can uh, only imagine my wife will need lots of prayers <laughs> <laughs> but yeah that's i mean because i've been i was teaching for five years um and just wasn't feeling like i was making a big difference mm. um and didn't my heart wasn't in it anymore and you know this is the first year that i've not been teaching but i've been full-time i've been full-time focus on coaching and it's been great and I love it. Yeah. So my wife is supportive and uh, we're, we're very excited for this new adventure in our lives. Mm -hmm. What will you be teaching and or coaching there? Um, I'm going to be coaching the swim team at the Gardner-Webb University. Oh, right on. Okay. You may recognize the name from the NCAA basketball tournament. They have a really good basketball program. Okay. Um, their coach reached out to me and I got an interview and I've accepted the job and that's great. I will be moving the second week in August out to boiling Springs, North Carolina. I have to admit, I don't know where that is. And the, I know where Camp Lejeune is and I know where, you know, the Asheville area is for much yeah. further to the West. Where's, where's the university? I'm pretty sure it's over to the West. It's about an hour West of Charlotte. Okay. Okay. And close to the Tennessee border and South Carolina. So. Yeah. Yeah. That's a beautiful part of the state, I think. It is. Yeah, it really is. And I'm excited for four seasons, not just yeah. cold and hot here yeah. in Texas. Yeah, I, full, I agree with you. I kind of missed that myself uh, <laughs> growing up in the Boston area. Um, yeah. Do you have any particular, you talked a bit about your family, you talked a bit about uh, faith just your own way of processing through trauma. Do you have any other resources that you have used or that you'd like to share with others? Um, I'm blessed that I'm in an area where they are very veteran friendly. Mm -hmm. um, you know, for example, right down the street from me, there's a huge athletic complex, with, you know, like 10 baseball fields, like eight football fields. It's huge. And they have, a it's called veterans park and inside the park they have pavilions you know that have names of different battles and you know the history of different things that were going on in the united states and it's really cool that they also have a wall that is you know, has the names of veterans from the area on it and it's cool mm. to bring my son there or my my wife or my daughter there and show them like, there's my name on this wall. I can yeah. say, you know, I was a part of something. 
Yeah. Um, so that's a great thing. There's a great outreach program within Bryan College Station, but also I'm blessed that I went to Texas A&M. Texas A&M is a very veteran-friendly organization. Actually, that's where the current 2-7 battalion commander went to school. He was actually in the ROTC program. Um, he was running the ROTC program there. Okay. Um, so, it, you know, those the resources I had really helped me build relationships with other veterans. Mm-hmm. Um, just got me to be more outgoing and uh, wanting to be a part of something else than just being a veteran. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, one last question. You asked, um, you didn't ask. I asked you about some of the, the ways to 2-7 is or is not forgotten and how we continue to tell our story. And you mentioned get doing interviews for books. Uh, do you know of any of our guys? I know of a couple of guys that have talked about writing books. Do you know of any guys that are uh, in the middle of actively writing something to kind of catalog our history? Um, there is one that's already been written um i it, he's going to kill me that i can't remember his name okay terry mcgowan McGow- yeah terry mcgowan okay yeah, he wrote a book so that's really cool to show others and then i actually have other book the one that i'm actually in that i was interviewed for it's called after combat okay uh, it's true war stories from iraq and afghanistan and it's it's a collection of stories. It doesn't have our names on it, but it's um, a English professor at A&M brought in veterans and they told their story. Okay. And they got the, and they're all anonymous stories, but I mean, I know where I'm at. I know where, what I said, but it's yeah. really cool to read that. And I've been writing a book on and off. I've been, when I say I've been writing a book, I've been writing on paper and, typing in the computer, you know, every once I get, once in a while I get a wild hair up my butt and I want to start writing things down a little sure. more, but, um, you know, there, there are probably others that are wanting to write stuff. It's just, will it ever get published? Right. It's been 10 years since I was a Marine. Yeah. Crazy to think about that. Yeah. 10 years in August, I was a Marine. I've been out longer than I was in. So, and the older we get, probably the more stories will come out. Those stories will not be as true as <laughs> when we were as close. I mean, right. the only ones that will, well, I'm a history major, so I've talked to a lot of professors that have written World War II history books. And mm-hmm. they say, one of the things that always sticks out to me is, if you're going to interview a veteran, bring their wife around. Nice. Their wife will be the one that'll smack them and say that you're telling a fib or right. Cause they've heard the story a thousand times and they know when you're embellishing it. So, um, I mean, I guess the more removed we get from it, the more our stories will change. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It's, I don't know who else is writing stuff. Yeah. If they if they are great, keep writing, but um, be prepared for nobody to want to read it. <laughs> a little dose of brutal honesty there. That's good. I mean, that's true. I mean, the further we get away from war, yeah, the less people want to read about it. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, don't know. I mean, think about all the movies that came out about World War II, even well after, even decades after World War yeah. II. 
And granted, it's a different war. People have a different kind of enchantment with uh, with it. Um, the more, and that's part of it too. I think the more removed you get from it, people remember it a different way than the veterans remember it. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, you know, D Day was a bloody, horrible, uh, you know, day for a lot of guys who went through it. Obviously, a great victory, uh, a key turning point in the war in Europe. But again, we, I think, we all watch like Saving Private Ryan and and movies like that with sort of this this sense of awe and enchantment. And I guarantee you, there was no sense of enchantment for any of the guys on Omaha Beach that day. You know, right? So who knows? It, you know, it could. Uh, the distance could work sort of to our advantage in getting the stories out there at the same time. We'll see. Yeah, it could. It's, I mean, but we do owe it to our children and our great grandchildren to have a recorded history of what we did. Um, Only history will be able to tell, you know, what that looks like. Yeah. Will they really even care as much as we did? I mean, who knows? So, I mean, if, if they are writing it, great. Uh, don't expect it to be on the New York Times bestsellers list. Right. You know, we've been, I mean, as a, as a civilian now, people are tired of war. They're yeah. tired of hearing about these conflicts, and they hear the same thing day in and day out. But they forget how they felt when it was September 11th, That's when right. shock and awe happened, when... Um, when Osama bin Laden was killed, they forget those feelings. And I think we need to, every once in a while, we need a little shock and a remembrance of what things were really like uh, during those dark days in history. Yeah. Yeah. That uh, Marine I was telling you about earlier, that was with, uh, with fifth Marines. Uh, He said he was on patrol the day that Osama bin Laden was killed and they came over the, the radio and mentioned it to, to everybody. And he said he had the hardest time, not just shouting, you know, the, uh, how, how, how satisfying, how exciting that was just to have somebody who created so much devastation and, and fueled so much hate to, to be gone, you know, to be finally uh, taken out of the, well, taken out. Uh, well, Travis, is there anything I may have missed that you would, like to share you'd like to talk about i i think i've gotten everything off my chest (laughs) that you wanted to know i mean i'm i don't have regrets on what i tell people because it's it's great that people ask questions um and i think veterans really need to be more receptive to sharing this story because if you're always bottling things in just like emotions when they do come out it's going to in most likely a negative way yeah so i mean even with like the swimmers they're like you know some of them have been like have you killed anybody and i tell them the truth and right then and there and they're like then i i just show them that i'm getting back to a life where i'm not a marine i'm doing something completely different yeah that was a job that i had but it's not something that totally defines every waking minute of the day yeah That's right. So, I mean, that's just something that um, if people want to know things about veterans and want to know what war is like, just ask. I mean, and I think as veterans, we, we owe that to them 
the people that we actually serve and to ourselves, we owe them and us an explanation for what things are like. Yeah. I think that's only fair. I mean, if you think about it, everybody's tax dollars is going to all those rounds I shot from the M27. Right. <laughs> if they want to know something about what I did in the Marine Corps, I have an obligation to answer that yeah. because they helped us out. Right. So, right. You know, well, it's great to see your smile again. You've got yeah. probably one of the most memorable smiles of anybody in the Marine Corps. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and I, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk about your story, talk about how you've been uh, continuing to process through what you went through and how you've grown through it, continue to move forward through it. So uh, thanks, Travis. Um, yeah. Obviously, your story will continue to be told both in that book that you just shared uh, and in this interview. And who knows, we may have some more uh, books or even a movie coming out about 2-7 sometime you know, <laughs> in the near future. So thanks a ton. I appreciate it. Oh, yeah. Thank you for what you're doing as well, sir. It's definitely going to make an impact. All right, brother. All right. We'll, we'll talk soon. Yes, sir. Yes, sir.